where do those smaller slices of the pie fit in? At some point or another, you're going to play somebody that's just as good as those, those big slices as you. And then all of a sudden, those smaller slices are going to be the thing that was the deciding factor in a lot of games and championships. That was Minnesota Twins Director of Player Development, Tucker Frawley. He'll be our guest on the Base Path Podcast. Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with co-host Matt Feld. Today's guest has experience playing prep and D1 college baseball in New England, playing professionally, coaching at the D1 level in New England, and now working in player development for a professional franchise. Tucker Frawley made his name in the coaching ranks at Yale, where he developed one of the nation's top defensive teams and established a national following on Twitter. He is now charged with developing the Minnesota Twins' top draft picks while molding the organization's overall defensive philosophy. Tucker, thanks so much for joining the pod. No, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, you said beforehand it's it's the off season for you, so your schedule is a little bit more open. We've been trying to get you on for a while, but obviously it's always difficult in season. What does what the what do the next few months look like for you? Yeah, this is kind of where everything that we do during the spring and during the summer kind of take shape. It's it's kind of our compass of sorts. So over the next few months, I'm kind of going through big league data on both the catching and infield side trying to make sure that the things that we asked our players and coaches to attack still hold true in the sense that they're still producing value at the big league level, because if things are consistent, then we can kind of keep our processes the same, obviously trying to improve them to a certain extent. But if things at the big league level were to start to shift and we see value being created in other places, then we obviously want our player plans and the way that we attack practices and games and the season as a whole to change with it. So that's what these next few months are for, is just making sure that we have our thumb at big league production, big league value, and doing what we can come springtime to show our players that that research has been done and that the ways that we're about to attack their seasons, you know, has some merit to it. Tucker, how much do you guys, you know, I don't, when I say take, I don't mean like steal, but how much is information sharing a pretty big part of player developments in terms of observing what other organizations are doing? And I'm sure other organizations are doing the same thing as they watch you, as they watch you guys in your system. How much of, of that plays a, a, plays a role as you guys are formulating your developmental plans for the season? Yeah, I think every organization keeps their watchful eye on what other orgs are doing, especially the ones that are showing a high level of efficiency in a specific field. So I think it's natural for us, whether we admit it or not, to maybe be a little bit more privy to how a team is going about their pregame time on the field or in the cages. And we all have our connections throughout the game. It's a very small baseball world. And I think we all do our best, whether it's over beers, texts, Twitter, a number of different platforms, just to see what other, other teams are doing. And inevitably, we're going to be keeping certain things close to the best. But I think it's human nature for all of us to try to learn not only from those within our org, but from those outside. When you talked about, you know, catching an infield as as your areas of focus this offseason and finding out if your priorities from previous years line up with, you know, what's most efficient across the game. How would you describe the Twins organizational philosophy in terms of catching an infield? Yeah, I think. Our defensive philosophies align with this, our pitching and hitting philosophies in the sense that we, we are all in the, everything is geared towards either run creation or run prevention. And as long as we have numbers backing up what we're trying to attack in the practice setting, that's not to say that our eyes aren't being utilized and that there are plenty of things in every single space that can't be quantified and that we do need to use our gut and our feel and experience as coaches and players to, to help like blend the two. 
But our philosophy on the defensive side is doing our best to keep things as objective as possible in terms of what is good, what is bad. We want to have our thumb on exactly where we are relative to everybody else in in the game at every single level. And I think if there's one thing that has carried over from my time at Yale in college to here, it's that I do my best to try to make our catching and infield spaces self-aware. If we're average in any respect, our players know that. And they're, they know that at any time during their seasons and obviously going into their off season. If they're above average, they know where, how they're being above average. And if there's obviously areas of weakness that we want to have them attack, it's my job and our coach's job to make sure that they not only have that information shared with them, but most importantly, that it's digestible and they understand it in a way that they can take to any practice setting, whether that practice setting is with us or with their buddies back at home or any instructor that they may be connecting with during the off season. So that's more or less what we try to do defensively. And again, that's pretty consistent across the entire PD space with the plans. When you, were, when you were at Yale, of course, you know, when you're dealing with incoming freshmen, you're trying to get them to adapt to your philosophies, your techniques, your teaching methods. I'm curious if anything you learned while doing that, while trying to get new guys on board, for lack of a better term, how does that translate to the way you kind of approach that side of things at the minor league level, where through trades or signings or draft picks, obviously, you have to get new players on board to what you're doing. And I'm wondering, is it similar in any way, shape or form, or is it two totally different sort of means and methods? It's one of the, I think any, any coach that makes that jump from, from college to pro ball, there's, there's the thought or the worry that you want to call it, it how well, like your, your relationships with players is going to be, how, how similar that's going to be. And, and one of the best comments I got was actually from Jake McKinley, who I think he, he first started out as a pitching coordinator with the Brewers. He ascended to the farm director with the Brewers and he's now back in college at, I believe the university of Nevada. And he said, actually, the, the relationships with the players, the way you communicate with them, that's going to be the most familiar thing in the world to you. It's, it's, it's going to seem like, a, not to be redundant, a seamless transition. And I think players, whether they're a, a high school recruit, a high school freshman, a player who just got drafted and is being introduced to professional baseball as a whole, or an older player, a veteran, a salty vet at that, every single one of these players just wants somebody that pays as much attention to their game as anybody else in the game. And if you show them that you have sifted through their years and years of playing experience, that you have your thumb on all of the things that they do well, all the things that they don't do well, and that you have a plan of attack, I really do believe that the effort that you show these guys, independent of their age, that's all players at any level of the game want to see. So that part of it was something that we tried to show recruits. We obviously tried to carry over into our player development plan with the actual players. At Yale, and that's something I carried with me on the pro ball side that I see players, again, like to your point, whether they were drafted by us or traded for, they seem to appreciate it. When we were texting to try to schedule this throughout the year, it always impressed me how, how many different kind of irons you had on the fire, whether it was, you know, kind of working independently with some of the top draft picks and getting them up to speed on the organizational philosophy. How does your year lay out in terms of like, are you at the spring training complex? And then what are you doing throughout the baseball season? Yep. So the busiest times of the year for me in terms of travel are are obviously during spring training and our instructional week. So I I will go down there for spring training. Our spring training complex is in Fort Myers, Florida. And I go down there and we, we do what every other team does during that time. We're getting guys on ramp for the season. We're getting their legs underneath them. All the while, we're still trying to teach them and remind them of the things that we're hoping that they knock out of the park, so to speak, 
once the season gets going. Instructional leagues at the tail end, it's a way for us to make sure that we either give extra time to guys who either need it, who missed it due to injury, or a variety of reasons that we just want a little extra TLC before they jump into their off season. That's another month to, let's say, four to six weeks out in Fort Myers that I'm down there. In between is my travels. And that is the twins do an incredible job giving our coordinators the flexibility to kind of go where they see the biggest need or needs. So if, you know, at, at face value, you want to be able to visit every single affiliate multiple times throughout the season. But this past year, for whatever reason, we had a collection of guys in our double at our double affiliate that they wanted us to give as much TLC to as possible. So I probably made six to eight visits to our Wichita affiliate again, two or three to, to the other affiliates, but there's some flexibility there with our travels that we can kind of go where we're, we're most needed over the course of those summer months. I feel like nowadays there are so many theories as to why organizations succeed, why organizations fail. Every time a team loses in the playoffs, it's because, you know, they didn't invest as much as information or they didn't hire the right people. Or they didn't. What's your kind of overall take on the state of the game when it comes from a developmental aspect? Kind of where do you see the game going? Because it seems like it might be sort of in this hodgepodge, chaotic time frame, so to speak. It, yeah, I think it feels like that to a lot of people just because we're, we have a time... We're in the middle of a time right now where people's thoughts, emotions, opinions are more accessible than ever. But the way I think of it is this, the pendulum has always swung and the game has always evolved. And inevitably the pendulum will swing too far. It'll come back and never come back as far as people may hope or want, want it to. But the game is still in a process of evolving that it has always evolved. And we're learning. With that, with that pendulum swing, we're learning what works, what sticks, where we went too far, things that on the old school side held true that maybe we tried to tweak or improve upon that if we had just left the way that it needed to or the way that it once we actually would have been better off. So I call it an exploratory phase more than anything else on the baseball front. I think organizations are more open than ever to try some things that maybe in years past, they were a lot more hesitant to do from hiring people to training techniques to just the ingredients that they may grade both players on an individual level and teams on a team-wide level relative to what they see as, as efficient and productive. We're trying to figure out what that best concoction is right now. And that's what makes sports awesome. Like every organization that you talk to, every coach that you talk to is going to have a different philosophy in terms of what that concoction or cocktail is. For, and if there was a clean cut, black and white blueprint, everyone would do it. But that's what makes sports so unique and so awesome because you can see a number of different teams try things in maybe some at face value, a lot of similar ways. But trust me, there are 30 teams doing things in a very unique way relative to their coaches, their personnel. That, and they're just, they're, they're all gaming towards the same things. But I, I think more than ever, we're doing it in a way that's a little bit more open-minded to all the options that are out there. I was looking for your through your Twitter feed a little bit to get ready for this podcast. And one of the points that you were making, I think it was probably early on in the pandemic, was about incorporating drills into a practice. And you were saying, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, you need to be doing this drill. You know, this is what everybody's doing. But it's another when you factor in every t- every minute that you're spending on a new drill, it takes away from maybe time that you're spending doing something else. And you've got to be most efficient on how you incorporate these drills. And that's the name of the game. And it kind of made me think of travel ball now, because 
people are saying now with travel ball, it's more about showcasing. It's more about competition, less time being spent on overall player development. What do you make of that trend? And are you seeing that as guys get to the professional level that they need more time on drill work because they haven't had it through their age group years? Yeah, it's commonplace outside of the, of the U.S. And that was one of the biggest eye openers that I had this year where, where we we didn't have an opportunity to jump to the Dominican Republic the last couple of years due to the pandemic. Um, but this year was the first year that I was able to get over there. And one of the most eye-opening comments from our DR manager was that those players are in a very similar state that we kind of consider our American players in the sense that by the time they hit 13, they're asked to showcase. And the, the training that they do to showcase their 60 time, their arm strength, their bat speed, it does take away from a lot of the nuances of the game that we need to step in once they do sign and teach them. And I just think it's a healthy thing for all of us uh, to understand that unless you're actually playing the game of baseball, everything that we do in the practice setting is investing time in something, but you're consciously or subconsciously making a concession with other things. So a good example is, is hitting live BP or shooting BP up a machine. You're making a heavy investment in velocity. You can get that machine 60 feet, six inches away to give you the same that you're going to face into a game, a game. But what are you conceding? You're conceding reading the pitch out of the pitcher's hand, the unpredictability of the pitch, the unpredictability of the location. And if those things are things that you believe in and are that are important to the player's development, then with that concession comes, okay, when am I going to work on this? Who do I need to work on it with? And that's just a small example, I think, of where that the game has always been. And I think the biggest challenge that we all have as, as coaches, whether this is high school, college, and obviously the pro ranks, it's how much time do we spend in each of those quote-unquote categories and when do we spend them? It's not a matter of if. I do think that any coach that's worth his salt understands that there are things that at the very least need to be talked about. And obviously, if you can bring them to the to the field of play in the practice setting, it's going to make those conversations that much more fruitful. But the real like challenge here and that, that we all have is saying, okay, what's the most important thing? How much time do we want to invest in that? How often do we want to invest in it? And then where do those smaller slices of the pie fit in? Because they do, they may not be the biggest slices, but at some point or another, you're going to play somebody that's just as good as those, at those big slices as you. And then all of a sudden, those smaller slices are going to be the thing that, you know, is the deciding factor in a lot of games and championships. The Base Path Podcast will be back after these messages. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day 
with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division 1, 2, and 3 colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. What's your what's your role in terms of hiring coaches or overseeing that aspect in terms of bringing on new staff? I feel like that might be a point of not contention across organizations in terms of what they're looking for in coaches at the minor league level. When you see requirements, some you know need to know R and SQL and, and other organizations. Maybe not. They don't. They have different responsibilities and qualifications. What's kind of your role in overseeing that process with the Minnesota Twins? And, and what do you think makes a good professional coach? Yeah, as far as like the hiring process, our front office, that, that falls on their shoulders and they do a tremendous job of that. And I, I just want to mention that the best thing about working for the Twins is the coaching staff and the things that I've learned since I've, I've been here, every single space from pitching to hitting to everything in between, S&C, it's a testament to the hires that our front office has, has made. In terms of like my role in that, like, here and there, like they'll, they'll ask if I have any recommendations, but like that baton is passed to them and they have a handful of things that they like to see. And, and for all intents and purposes, they knock those hires out of the park. In terms of like what I think makes a good coach, I think it's very relative to where we find ourselves in the game. I think you got to speak ideally a number of different languages. And um, yes, I think some may assume I'm meaning English and Spanish. That does, that is a huge feather in your cap if, you, if you're bilingual. But I do think you need to be able to speak both old school and new school. I think that that is one of, if not the best qualities in a, in a current age coach, someone who can see the value in things that were done 10, 20, even 30 years ago and how they still hold true today. But at the same time, can you speak old school? Do you know what these stats mean? Do you know what they point to and where their blind spots are so that when you have a conversation with an old school coach, someone who may not have those, those numbers they may not click with them right away. You can explain it to them in a way that makes sense to them. I, I think that all too often, we, we find ourselves on one of those two sides of the spectrum. And I think the person who can kind of speak to both sides and have both ends of the spectrum make sense to the other, there's an incredible amount of value there that's still yet to be really like tapped in and, and maxed out. Aside from that, skill set wise, the more that you can get out there and and physically show guys what you want to do. I think that's a very underrated thing in coaching in general. That is not a pro ball thing, but I do think that you're, the way that you're able to show with your body how you want an action made, that's, that's a value. I mean, things obviously go beyond words and we do want to be in elite at the way we communicate things and teach things as teachers and coaches. But I do think that there's a skill set that is oftentimes undervalued when you can get out there and show show hitters the move that you're trying to have them make fielders the same thing pitchers the same thing so yeah i think that on top of that a lot of the same traditional ways of communicating to a lot of different demographics a lot of different ages that that will always hold true in coaching whether you're you know coaching a little league team like my son's nine-year-old team or or a triple a AAA player so i think it holds true no matter what 
I, I want to talk about your career trajectory a little bit because you spent about a decade at Yale. Isn't that right? Where you were at Yale for like 10 or 12 years? Yeah, 12 and a half years. Okay. Yeah. And Coach Stuper, as you know, obviously retired after last season. So you were there for a while. And then I remember when he announced that he was retiring after last season, he was talking to me about, you know, possible successors. And he was like, you know, we'd obviously love to have Tucker Frawley come back and be the head coach. But he was like, you know, he's on to professional baseball. So I don't even know if he would have interest in that. Did you always plan or was it always a goal for you to get into professional baseball? Or did you ever imagine you would be the successor at Yale? I never imagined being in pro ball. That That's an honest statement. I do think that the the influx of college coaches to pro ball was a, was a surprise to me. And one that even when some opportunities did present themselves, I didn't jump at because I loved college baseball. I believe in college baseball and the the situation at Yale is one that for those who don't know the Ivy League baseball experience, it's one of the most, I think, I don't know the the ideal word for it. It's one of like the best versions of college sports out there. So I loved that experience. And when some of the the pro ball opportunities did come, I think we all get to a point in our professional career where we say, okay, like it's time for a different challenge. And that that's, I think, what was most enticing to me about the, this pro ball experience. And for what it's worth, I had every intention of getting back to college and, and potentially throwing my name into the hat back at Yale when, when Soup was retiring. But I think that my experience on the pro side, and I, I owe this a lot to the people with the twins, has been just so fulfilling that like I, I wanted to stay with it. And I know a lot of people are scratching their heads at that because they saw me being his successor. But I really do believe that this is the best version of me right now. And I also think Yale knocked it out of the park with their hire with Brian Ham there and as as much of, if not a better spot with having him at the helm going forward, all things considered. So as far as like, you know, aspirations, we, I think we all have things in the back of our mind that we want to do, but if there's one thing I've learned over the last five years or so is that things change, things can change quick. And the more that you kind of look back at the things that you said, oh, I'm going to be this, and this is what I want to do, the more you kind of laugh at yourself when, when you see how they ultimately unfold. I was listening to a, to a podcast that Theo Epstein did about a couple of weeks ago, and he was he was discussing about how, of course, he was on the front line sort of, of of the next generation of how people analyze the game back in 2002 and 2003, along with Billy Bean. And, and now that when he looks back on that, he wonders if he helped or hurt. the. And of course, he's now part of the Major League Baseball's efforts in, in the rule changes in terms of banning the shift and the pitch clock limits on how many times you can throw over to first base before a balk is called. And it was just interesting to hear him talk about how, you know, maybe he took some joy out of the game and in his own view, his own entertainment out of the game now that he's no longer involved in the game. What's your take on the upcoming rule change rule changes that are happening across Major League Baseball? And how do you expect that to impact the way that you guys go about your hitting philosophy and maybe your defensive philosophy as well? Yeah, I love the rule changes. There's a lot of them that, and I'm not super privy to exactly how many of these were, were carried over on to the Major League side next year, but I do have a good sense of the ones that we, we um, explored on the minor league side. As there's the shift, correct? The yeah. shift. Two infielders on each side of the infielder. Yeah, two, two infielders on each side. I believe the bases are getting bigger. The pitch clock is coming. But those are the big three, correct? Yeah, and then you can't, you can't throw over to first base more than two times. If you throw over a third time and the runner is safe, it's a balk. That is going into yeah. the biggest. Uh, I love that one. It's, worth. it's actually like, 
it's it's a low key like when a pitcher does throw over there a couple times and you have a base deal or at first base it, it, it creates some energy and some excitement that you're like okay this is going to be cool so i think that's an underrated rule that once you see it in effect people will will definitely like and it'll also make those throws over to first base that much more meaningful if and when a guy were were to do it it's not just a matter of kind of resetting and breaking timing so as far as the shifting rule goes I may be in the minority here. I don't think that they're going to take as much of an effect as people think they're going to. I think there are ways that you can cheat to get around the what people think are restrictions. I think everyone envisions these rules basically putting infielders in a position where they look like they did back in 1980, where they're balanced and they're ready to go in both directions. But the fact of the matter is, I think infielders are going to know that there's going to be a direction that's more likely that the batter's more likely to hit a ball than another. And then you're going to see subtle changes to the angle that they set up their feet, the weight that they, they, they put on each foot, the, the momentum that they create in that direction. And I do think that there's some creative ways that coaches can um, not get around the rules, but play to the rules in a way that, yes, I do think you're going to see a few more hits squeeze through, but nowhere near as much as people may hope or envision. I wanted to ask about your experience as a player, you know, in the New England area getting recruited, because it seems like that's changed so much in the last few years with the transfer portal. You know, guys are, it looks, it seems like college coaches are looking for older guys who, uh, have even had success at the college level somewhere else. And I, I was reading, you were a three-time All-New England player at Holy Cross. You hit 400 one year. How do you think your recruiting experience, what was your ex- recruiting experience like with Holy Cross? And how do you think it would be different based on the way the, the college game has changed these days? Yeah, talk about different. I mean, when I talk about how I was recruited, people laugh. There was a, there was a showcase called Top 96, and you would apply. And they would choose the what they considered the top 96 players. And you went out there, you played for a day, and you got some phone calls. And outside of that, your Legion team hoped to make it to the state tournament where you knew a handful of the local like, colleges were going to be the games. That's how I got recruited by Craig Nigerian with Holy Cross. And to say that things are different now would be a, a drastic understatement. I think top 96 and every other showcase entity realized that if they had 300 applicants to their showcase if they just invited all of them they make a lot more money <laughs> so that whole space has has morphed into something that is drastically different than it once was and it's funny that you say that like it's a different game now i i can't tell you how much things have changed even from my three years being outside of the college game i speak to a handful of friends that are still on the college side no more than my friend, Mike Barron, who was a Holy Cross alum as well, who's at Old Dominion now. And the things that he says and the headaches that he says come with recruiting nowadays, given those transfer portal rules and the flexibility that players have now, it's, it's a different ballgame and a unique one at that, which is also why I still point to my experience at Yale and some other schools, even Holy Cross for that matter. And I do think that a lot of the headaches that both coaches and families go through right now, given the rules, there are still some amazing opportunities and pockets of college baseball that still do it right and still protect kids and families from a lot of the the pains that this process now is away. So that's a different ballgame to say the least. Mm-hmm. It's funny, Craig and Jerry's of course the athletic director now at Catholic Memorial, and I was I was actually asking him a couple months ago if he missed it college baseball you know at all, and he was like, "Are you kidding me? No." Like, especially the recruiting year round, right? And I'm curious from your perspective, just to kind of build off Dan, 
dance question a little bit. You know, do you feel like college baseball at some point is going to have to go back to to a mean of or a median of some kind? Right. I feel like you mentioned earlier about pendulums. I feel like it's swung in so much in one direction where like everyone's invited to a camp to help get, you know, usually a volunteer assistant understandably paid and, you know, showcases are all over the place and players are flying all over the country. Like I feel at some point, right, like doesn't this have to stop? Like there's got to be some sort of pendulum that swings back, you'd feel like. <laughs> Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest black eye in the recruiting process, I would say, are the kids and the families that are told at the eleventh hour, like actually with the just the the handshake, the verbal handshake that we made, we're going back on it, and that happens all too often. I mean, you, you can our conversations with families, the things that we see online, they point to that happening way more often than they need to. So. The, the fix for, I think every coach and every family would agree that those type of situations where a kid is invested in going to a school for four years and he has the rug pulled out from under him, we want to do our best to minimize that. It may never get to the point where we eliminate it completely, but the more that we can minimize that, I do think steps need to be taken in that direction. Now, if that means that verbal agreement can be accompanied with something that a family signs and puts that program and that coach on the hook for, you know, for something maybe earlier than that senior year national signing day. There are options there. There's probably more things that I've even like thought of being out of the college game. But like, I do think if there's one thing that colleges and families could agree on, it's, it's that rug being pulled out of, of, of people's feet and both coaches and families feeling like, okay, what the hell do I do now? And that's actually being felt by coaches as much as it is players now with those new rules. So I'm sure that's a big debate to be had for a long time, but you'd like to see that pendulum swing back in a direction that just protects everybody from that. It's funny. We were talking before the the start of the podcast about your title and it's a pretty specialized, you know, infield catcher. Is there somebody in the industry? Like, do you have an inspiration or somebody that inspired you to go down that path in professional baseball? Not really. I mean, honestly, like one of the things that I've learned is the more that you try to mimic and mirror other people, the less authentic you come across. And I think that one of the turning points of my career at Yale was not trying to look around at those who I had the utmost amount of respect for. You'd go to college, college coaching conventions, you listen to people speak and you're like, okay, if that's what they're doing, I'm just going to do that same thing. And if it works for them, it should work for me. I think that Getting to the point in my coaching career where I was always open to what those other coaches had to say, but also open enough to challenge what they were saying, test it out on my own, and maybe leave myself the opening to do some things that others hadn't done before. That's been the real turning point, I think, for me with players and also professionally. So to say that I've had a certain title or role in the back of my mind that I've been working towards, I'd be lying to you. And I think everything good in my career that has come has come incredibly organically. And it's been something that I was never like seeking out or looking to do. So as far as like inspirations go, there's a number of guys in the profession that I, I value their opinion. And I've found myself gravitating towards every podcast, coaching clinic, and uh, an opportunity to hear them speak and share their thoughts. But at the end of the day, I think the best teacher are your own two eyes. And most importantly, your players. If they can regurgitate back to you what it is that you believe in and it ultimately provides value for them in the framework of their game and their careers, that's way more of a litmus test than what like another coach may be doing, saying, and, and you trying to mirror that. So, yeah. 
The last thing I wanted to ask you about, I was reading, I think it was your bio, you know, at Yale or maybe when you got hired with the twins. And it was saying you kind of had like a, a huge Twitter following that built up. Like, how do you use Twitter and how did that happen where it kind of exploded and you got a huge following? Yeah, I started my Twitter handle to try to trick my players. I'm on record <laughs> as having said that. Like, the reason it's infield chatter, not my name, is because it was a period of time when a lot of players were, their eyes were gravitating there. They would bring in like tweets to me every day or send them to me from class which at a time that they probably should have been paying more attention to, to their professors. But I knew that's where their eyes were. So, a lot of the video that I was cutting up, I, I just put there and I let them kind of see it organically and and not look at it as, hey, this is what my coach is telling me to do. So that's where it started. And inevitably, it got to the point where a couple of my buddies would actually like say, hey, look at this. Look at the Twitter account. I think you'll like it. Said a lot of <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> They're like, dude, you got to put your name on it. And I, I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to come across as that guy. And no, they're like, no, it's going to help you. It's going to help you get your name out like for recruits and to high school coaches. And that's exactly what it did. It turned into, I think, more than anything else, a recruiting resource for me so that high school coaches knew that they were sending their their players to potentially a place that they were going to be taken care of and that the coach had a decent lens for what he was for for the game. So that's that's kind of how it organically grew. And obviously, like I'm not in the recruiting market anymore. I don't have as much of a need for it, although I do find myself on it daily. It's just it's that's the that's the means it served me as recently as a few years ago while I was still wearing a yellow uniform. So Yeah. Well that's a good tip for other recruiting coordinators around New England. That's that's pretty cool. Well Tucker, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great catching up and I'm glad we finally got you here at the in the off season. It was it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me. Thanks again. Tucker, thanks. Thanks to Tucker Frawley for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.